Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes and to 2018. In this episode we speak to Nikesh Shukla, or rather I do, via Skype. Nikesh is the author of two uh, novels, Coconut Unlimited and Meat Space, and also the editor of The Good Immigrant. So I was away when Cassia did this, but really excited to have Nikesh on the show. The Good Immigrant is an anthology that's been creating a great deal of buzz recently, a collection of essays by uh, writers on the immigrant experience in the UK. And it was also published by Unbound, the innovative publishing company that we previously had an editor from on Always Take Notes. Nikesh was incredibly fascinating to talk to and also really funny. So I'm sure that you will enjoy the episode. Uh, so I wondered if you could start by talking about your early career and what led you to write Coconut Unlimited. Yeah, so I spent a lot of my 20s as a really average rapper um, <laughs> and I was convinced I was going to be the next big thing. I was, um, I really thought I was going to be a big rapper, but the thing was, at the time I never realised was that I was quite average. Um, and I think part of that was just like a lack of attention to craft or, um, I just didn't do it enough. And the thing about being a rapper is you either have to be amazing because so much of rappers is about bravado and ensuring that your lyrics, um, are constantly reinforcing the fact that you're amazing or you have to be a bit shit, but have like a certain quirk, sort of like, sort of like old dirty bastard. Am I allowed to swear on this, by the way? Absolutely. Go ahead. Cool. Um, and uh, But in the background, I was always writing. I was writing short stories and I was writing um, poetry. And um, I went and lived in Kenya for a year. And during that time, I took the writing a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of I realized that I got a lot more enjoyment from writing than from rapping or doing music stuff. I had like one last ditch attempt at doing something music related. It didn't blow up, um, quite rightfully so, listening back to the songs. Um, but I had this book. I had a book and I was like, I'm going to get this published. So I sent it out to loads of publishers, loads of agents, uh, got a 100% record of rejections and... I was feeling really, really down about this book. But then I, I sort of thought, well, this is the first like book-length thing that I've written. Maybe this just isn't the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, that book is actually still in a drawer. But then I um, started thinking about what I wanted to write about. And I don't know, I kind of wanted to write an ode to my years of being a really average rapper. And Coconut Unlimited just kind of poured out of me. Mm-hmm. And... Then I put it out on submission to like agents and to publishers. And mm-hmm. this is where I started to realize that maybe the book was good, but there was something else that was holding me back because publishers and agents would tell me a mixture of things like, oh, we've already got an Indian author mm-hmm. coming out at the moment, or your, your characters only really feel authentically Asian enough, or um, have you got anything with a rural detective? Uh, someone once said to me. <laughs> And All the things that you want to hear when you're, you know, putting your uh, your novel out there into the world. That's exactly the kind of feedback you want. Yeah, like, and you're like, I've just come to terms with the fact that I'm an average rapper. Please don't make me feel like I'm an average writer as well. But uh, I, I persisted and it eventually found the right person. Because I guess with all of these things, it just takes 
one yes from one person to make you forget all of the really, really horrible rejections you've had along the way, unless they were racist, in which case I hold on to them and I talk about them at every possible opportunity. Quite right too. Did you have an agent helping you through this process? Or was it, were you sort of writing to publishers blind or were you, were you did you have an agent kind of helping you um, negotiate that and then sending it out with you? Uh, when I was sending out Coconut Unlimited, I didn't have an agent. I was sending it to a mixture of agents and publishers. Okay. And I just started working for a place called Book Trust, uh, doing some website stuff for them. And it meant that I was suddenly invited to loads of literary things and I was meeting lots and lots of people and I thought maybe I could just circumvent the agent thing and send it directly to some editors where I'd met them and got on with them. Mm. And so it was a mixture of the two, but I then I found my editor without an agent and I signed I signed my contract uh, without an agent, which I would recommend people don't do um, because it turns out agents are really good for knowing what things in contracts authors won't care about but are probably quite important absolutely yeah and i I want Uh, to take a moment at this point to shout out also to the society of authors um who really help in that as well um even if you have an agent but uh definitely all that kind of small print that you don't think will matter when you're just eager to get something signed suddenly comes back to uh haunt you later on yeah definitely and Around that time, I just started um, developing something with Channel 4 um, for their Comedy Lab strand that they used to do, which was um, they would do a season of comedy pilots, and then um, the hope would be that some one of them would get commissioned for a series. So like things like Phone Shop and um, Face Jacker, I think, mm. or Phone Jacker, whatever it was. Yeah. Phone Jacker. Um, they both came out of the Comedy Lab's uh strands and uh, so I had a thing commissioned that was a comment sitcom about kabaddi which is a, an Indian wrestling sport and um, I it was really really advised to me that I get an agent to help me with that deal by Channel 4 mm-hmm. and they said we would not feel uh, well so Channel 4 um got the script to a production company called Objective and both Channel 4 and and Objective and my mentor who was going to script edit it for me Mm -hmm. all said we would feel completely unethical if we allowed you to sign your contract without an agent looking at it first. And so they all put me in touch with agents and um, my my best friend Nima, he, he had a film TV agent and I gave her a shout and I met her and she was just, she was one of the, one of the few people in those meetings who basically said, it's great that you've got this comedy lab and well done for that. But I'm really interested to know what you want to do and what you want your career to look like and how I can then fit into that. Whereas everyone else was like, okay, tell me about this comedy lab. Um, and basically how am I going to make money out of you? And, um, and I really liked her and, so I signed with her and um, then she wanted me to come into the book department um, and so I signed with the, uh, the book agent there who had interestingly had rejected Coconut Unlimited months earlier. Oh really? Yeah. How was it sort of going back and, and uh, being introduced to the same person through a, a different format? It, well, it didn't really work out um, and I left them for another agent 
who was brilliant and really kind of got what I wanted to do. And this agent, uh, Jamie, he's like, he's a really, really good editor. And I kind of felt when I signed with him and he first started working on what would become Meat Space, what was originally titled The Boy with the Bowtie Tattoo. Mm. Like I kind of felt like I had a really limited time with Jamie because he was destined to work in editorial because like a sharp editorial mind like his, mm. like it is almost wasted as an agent. Yeah. Um, like it happened and he got headhunted. Uh, he's now a commissioning editor at Macmillan. And I then was without agent. And I was freaking out because I was mm-hmm. going to work on my third novel and I didn't really know what to do. I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And I thought, I'm just going to write something. So I started writing something and started putting feelers out to agents um, who were all saying, you know, yeah, when it's done, send it to me. I'd love to have a look, obviously. But a chance at meeting with Kathy Rensenbrink, who's an amazing writer and all-round brilliant egg, um, where I mentioned I didn't have an agent. And she said, oh, really? Okay. And then a few days later, I got an email from Julia Kingsford, who is now my agent. And she basically said, I hear you don't have an agent. I would love to represent you. And I said, I'm just in the middle of working on something. Can I send it to you when I'm done? She said, yeah, you can do. But I just want you to know I'm really interested in working with you regardless of the thing that you're working on. I really want to help you with your career. Where do you see your career? And it was the exact same conversation that I had with my film and TV agent, Georgina. And I really love my relationship with my film and TV agent. So I was like, this person is sort of saying similar things to me. So I met with, well, I had a phone chat with Julia outside um, the place where you get Alu Parata in Bristol, which is like a little kiosk outside Primark. And I was bizarrely standing there when she phoned me. We had a chat and then she came to see me in Bristol, which is always a sign that someone someone is interested. I mean, she was also visiting her mum, who doesn't live too far away, but, you know, that's by the by. Still counts. She just, she got to claim the expenses back on that train ticket. Um, (laughs) Um, it sounds like your experience of um, getting an agent and entering the publishing industry was both incredibly frustrating and quite messy. How did that um, feed into your experience of writing your second novel? I mean, were those frustration? Were you expecting the same kind of responses or had you had enough positive feedback from the pro- publication of Coconut Unlimited to kind of boost you through the writing of your second novel? I mean, I had enough. I had enough goodwill, but I think the thing the the thing that a lot of people were telling me was you're only as good as the thing that you're currently working on. This is the industry isn't like what it's u- used to be. And and I was like, well, I'm much more interested in like accepting the fact that my first novel will once my career is over be my weakest novel because I'm only interested in getting better. Mm. Like, it's only worth doing this if with each novel I'm getting better or, like, expanding my palette of things that I Mm. can and want to write about. Um, And here's here's a funny thing. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's funny. It might be funny. Who knows? If you laugh at this, tweet tweet me. But um, so in between writing Meat Space and putting out The Good Immigrant and my next novel, The One Who Wrote Destiny... I wrote a third novel. There is a manuscript for a third novel. So in total, I've written a lot of novels because there's the one I wrote before Coconut Limited that's still in the drawer. And um, yeah, it's called I've Forgotten My Mantra, which is like a little nod to an old uh, Annie joke from Annie Hall that like is Jeff Goldblum's one line in Annie Hall, and like bits of that have ended up feeding into the one who wrote Destiny, which is my next novel out in April. So Meat Space came out in 2014, 
but I wrote it in sort of 2012, 2013. So when it was finished and it was with publishers, I started working on something in 2013. And it's called Wild Loaves. And it's a romantic comedy where two people... Two people, strangers who don't know each other, go to a music festival and they, for, through circumstance, they're kind of thrown together and they fall in love over the course of three days. And it's very funny and charming and whatnot. And it was really easy for me to write. But the thing that I realised on writing it, and the reason I didn't send it out to agents after Jamie left me to work in editorial, um, it, like the reason I didn't send it out to try and get another agent was because I thought this was too easy for me to write. I don't feel like I've expanded my palette of things that I want to write about. And I certainly don't feel like I've gotten better than meet space with this book. Mm. And that's really, really important to me. I could send it out and I could put it out, but I personally, as a writer, don't feel like this is where I'm at. So writing for you needs to feel like a struggle for you to feel like you've done a good job. Not so much a struggle. It needs to feel like I've answered something like I've I've had a big question mm. and that question needed answering and the only way to answer it was through writing. And, you know, Coconut Limited was about me trying to reconcile my my youth with where I was at at the time. Meet Space was about me trying to reconcile like humanity within like our excessive social media usage. Mm-hmm. Wild Loaves was me trying to write a third novel that was funny and charming. Yeah. Whereas the one who wrote Destiny is me, like, I'm trying to write, like, the the small history of immigrants. So it's very much about these tiny but significant stories of immigration that kind of paint a narrative about this wonderful multicultural society that I believe can exist in the UK. And it that was very much what I wanted to do with the next novel that's coming out. And so... Writing for me is about answering questions and those questions might be to do with my own personal failings or my own, you know, neuroses or anxieties, or it might be to do with like a big world thing that I'm wrestling with. And um, so the, 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 I guess the topic of Im- immigration, obviously I've dealt with it head on with, with The Good Immigrant, but there was, there was another thing that was kind of going on for me, which was and it kind of culminated in a, a viral, bizarrely a viral hashtag. Like I'd been doing all this thinking around immigration and like immigrants and my family's story and all these stories that you never hear about mm. of these brilliant people who make up this country. And then um, Brexit happened and the week before Brexit, there was that infamous or that, I, some might say infamous, I say fucking racist poster, um, the breaking point poster, which Nigel Farage was standing in front of. And I got so upset about it, like so viscerally upset that he had stolen the narrative of who who got to be an immigrant and what it meant to immigrate from immigrants and the children of immigrants. And I felt like I was a pr- proud child of an immigrant. So as I was leaving work one day, I tweeted a photo of me and my dad because um, my mum's not around at the moment anymore. I said, I said at the moment, that's weird. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in ther- therapy maybe. But, <laughs> but um, I tweeted a photo of me and my dad and said something about his journey to the UK and I wrote and the hashtag proud child of an immigrant. Mm. And then a couple, like I cycled home and then a couple of other people had done something similar. So I retweeted them. Mm-hmm. Then I like did child time and played with my kids and then sat down to check the news and the hashtag had pretty much gone viral on Twitter. And that's that, surreal. 
particularly yeah. after your second novel was so much about social media uh, and in, in not particularly a positive way, that must have been quite a surprise. Yeah, and it was a really, really positive, warm, lovely thing. And and like it's it's the second time I've had something go viral because the first time was when uh, we released a video of us sending a lamb chop into space, uh, which was to promote meat space. Um, and but that was like it was my timeline was just filled with so much warmth and love and like these small, brilliant stories of significant. Um, active citizens of the UK and for me that was the moment I was re I really realized what this new novel was about and what question I'd been trying to wrestle with and that really helped with the edit of it and it, it was like I did quite a significant edit of the, of the book after that so yeah like writing for me isn't a struggle so much as like me wrestling with something like a question well, the first two novels um, seem to wrestle with issues of masculinity and identity and anxiety. Can you talk about how that was um, represented in publishing and how what you wanted to say was different? I guess, I, I mean, all of this answer is completely retrofitted to your question, because I, at the time I didn't realise that those two, no that's what I was writing about in those two novels. Mm -hmm. But but since, I, you know, because it, it did come up in interviews and it did force me to think about it and confront that perhaps, you know, I had been sort of trying to understand masculinity. Um, I guess the thing is that when, when we talk about um, depression in men and anxiety in men, um, we don't always talk about the, I, get, the, I guess, the nuance that men of colour feel, you know, the intersection of like mental health and being a person of colour in this country. Or, um, And a large part of that is because talking about mental health issues within BAME communities, or specifically for me, within my experience of talking about it within the South Asian community, is like it's a massive taboo and you just don't talk about it. And, you know, depression is something that, I've never really overtly written about. I, ironically, like Brexit forced me to write a very, very specific article about my struggles with mental health following a, um, an act of racism when I was a teenager. And that was in response to, like, after the referendum, there was this spike in hate crimes, this 46% spike in hate crimes. And whenever you talked about it publicly, you talked about it with your white friends, a lot of people just said, oh, it's just a bunch of idiots. Oh, it will all die down. It's just an isolated incident. Don't worry about it. And I, and I thought about it and I was like, well, an isolated incident of racism when I was a teenager really, really affected my mental health in a really negative way. And so I wrote an essay about it. And that was the first time that I'd like, I'd really like felt like I was talking openly about mental health stuff. And yeah, so I think with those two novels, it, it was there in the background, but maybe I hadn't... It, I hadn't sort of overtly realised, well, specifically with Coconut Unlimited, that that's what I was kind of talking about and sort of that act of self-delusion that that teenage boys feel when they're, they don't feel like they can take up space in certain environments can manifest in these sort of this grandiose sense of self, which... Um, you know, it's part of the stew of being an adolescent anyway, but I think yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, you just have a different experience and a different take. Yeah, definitely. And it's really interesting to hear that social media 
played such a positive role in the writing of your third novel because it also had an impact I believe on your editing or your creation of, of, of The Good Immigrant. Can you tell us about how that project came about? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, social media has been a really, really important part of my career for, for good or for bad, for, for positive or for negative. And I, I guess that, that sort of means that my relationship with it, with it is always tenuous in that I need it, but I don't want to need it. Or um, I it, it is significant, but at the same time, I wish wish I could just shut my computer off. Um, so uh, The Good Immigrant came about through like a series of roundabout things. Like, first of all, I'm a youth worker. Uh, in Bristol, and I, I edit, I mentor young people to create content, and um, we, I run a youth magazine, and you know, issues of representation have always been at the forefront when we've been talking about how we run that magazine and how diverse all the writers who write for that magazine are, and. Um, I was sitting on a diversity panel in 2015 and I was listening to an editorial director of a very major publisher list for five whole actual minutes, not five fictional minutes, five actual minutes, because I timed it, um, the names of every single writer of uh, colour that her publisher had ever published. And I fell into this weird stupor and I, I remembered five years earlier I'd been sitting on a diversity panel at London Book Fair and I realised that in 2015 I was saying exactly the same things that I'd been saying in 2010 mm -hmm. and even in 2010 it felt like a tired conversation yeah. and because um, in, in 20, 2009 I'd been to this sort of Arts Council celebration of diversity and publishing event and loads of, loads of people of colour in the industry felt so hopeful about the way the industry was going. Interestingly, loads of those people have now left the industry. And in 2015, I walked out of that diversity panel feeling really angry. And um, I went back to Bristol feeling really, really angry. But I was kind of going, I could moan about this on Twitter or I could do something positive. So I, I um, it was sort of picking away in my brain. And then um, I was asked to do some writing tips for The Guardian not long after that. And um, me and like four or five other writers. And in the comments, there were some really, really prominent writers sort of deba debating the validity of us giving our writing tips because they all felt that we weren't prominent enough. And they one of them supposed that maybe it was because we were all Asian and the journalist was Asian, that we were all just her mates. And um, that's why we've been asked for our writing tips. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. I can't even do anything as uncontroversial as give out writing tips. I, you know, the re it's constantly justifying my seat at the table. So in this case, I, I'm friends with a journalist or it's diversity or it's a box ticking exercise or it's affirmative action or it's, it's, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's never just because this is a good writer and this good writer has interesting things to say about how you can finish your novel. Um, and that made me feel really unapologetic about taking up space. And around that time, I read Citizen by Claudia Rankin and Between the World and Me um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And then I thought, well, I really wish there was a progressive book about race, contemporary book about race in the UK that was coming out now. Um, at the time, I didn't know that Rennie Edo Lodge had her book deal for why I'm no longer talking to white people about race although I'd read the piece. 
Um, and I didn't know that Afua Hirsch had her book, British. I think that just that was signed around that time as well. And I didn't know about the existence of those books. But um, a friend, Musa Kwanga, was talking about um, this idea of the good immigrant on Twitter one day where he was talking about how Nadia Hussein, or maybe it was Mo Farah, I can't quite remember, one of them, like, they were demonised by the press um, for being, you know, a refugee and... Maybe I think it probably was Mo Farah, and then they'd gone on to win some Olympic golds, and so they, in the right-wing press, become this model good immigrant because mm. they had done something constructive, seemingly constructive for society, rather than just exist. And uh, and uh, I tweeted Musa uh, and said, I totally read a book of essays about race and immigration in the UK called The Good Immigrant, mm. and he said you should do it, and a couple of other people said you should definitely do it, and so I thought. Well, Musa then DM'd me later that day and said, it reminded me of the Chinua Achebe quote, if you don't like the story, write your own. And I thought, mate, this is the positive thing I'm going to do. So I started thinking about doing it. And I spoke to Unbound because mm-hmm. I'd met Rachel Kerr, who's the editorial director of Unbound, at a talk I'd given. And um, what I thought was interesting about Unbound was that, you know, they work like any standard independent publisher like they've got penguin random house do their sales and distribution they've got an editorial department they've got publicity department all the rest of it but what they do is they crowdfund to pay for all the costs that a book incurs before it comes out which means that it's first from its first sale in shops it's making money for the author and for the publisher and i thought that was really interesting because a you're turning a profit on a book that you know is not going to lose money mm-hmm. b you've got like like a really organic word of mouth and c and this was specific to this book i thought whenever i questioned the low number of people of color in the uk being published people in the industry have historically and this is obviously not so much the case anymore have said people don't really read books by bam writers and Uh, which has always made me think, well, that's doubly insulting because one, you think my skin color is a marketing trend and two, you think it's not a very lucrative marketing trend. Mm. Um, So I wanted, I thought, what a brilliant way of showing that these books do have a readership by crowdfunding for it before a word of it has even been written. Mm. And the, the irony being that, you know, two years after that crowdfunding campaign and like a lot of conversation about diversity and inclusion in pub- in the publishing industry has resulted in um, people in the industry realizing that diversity can make money and it is a lucrative marketing trend. So like part of me really hopes that this is a sea change for publishing is going to be more inclusive uh, and not just a temporary, ah, we, we know how to monetize this thing. Well, I, I hope it's not seen as a trend, but a sort of realization um, that there's a, a, a seismic shift and that those readers are out there it's just that they haven't been catered to before but how was the process of of putting together um this book different from from that of writing a novel what was the kind of the creative difference between the two i didn't have to write any of it i just had to edit it but you had i mean you must have did you have control over the the different kinds of stories that were being put in did you always know who you wanted to um to be part of the project or were, were those decisions made as you went along well like this is a thing like the whole thing happened quite organically and nicely and messily because we didn't really think it would be at the success it's become so like when you when people 
talk about replicating the good immigrant effect and trying to replicate the process and they, they kind of approach me for advice. I'm like, I can't help you because, you know, it happened because of a tweet. I, ch I chose a crowdfunder because of um, a meeting that I'd had. Um, we released the crowdfunding campaign a month early because of an interview I did around World Book Night and the lack of diversity in World Book Night um for the guardian like so it was released a month earlier than scheduled yeah um and like it just so happens that moose rock wonga is followed by jk rowling on twitter i'm lucky that i went to school with and i'm still really good friends with someone who is now in a star war you know the, these are things you can't replicate but also when i was putting together the book and people are ask how did i choose the writers and I didn't have like any formula. I didn't think, well, I didn't. I didn't think, you know, it, it would be stupid of me to try and make do a book that was all representative of every community because that's going to lead to failure. If I went, oh, I'm going to have one person from this community, and one person from this community, and one person from this community. Instead, I just thought, I don't want this to be a political manifesto. I want an interesting group of writers, and those writers tell their stories and those stories be seen as important enough that people who have their own stories to tell feel like their stories are just as valid. That's really important to me. So, you know, I asked a load of writers and the 20 in the book are the writers who said yes. And when they said yes, came up with an idea when I asked them what they were gonna write about. And my job was to get out of their way as much as I could um, because, you know, it's it's very powerful to tell your own story in your own words or tell a story you really want to tell in your own words. So my job wasn't to kind of shape that or curate that too much, which is why I guess there are like a bunch of stories that are all about the power of representation in the book. But, you know, that I think that is a fundamental thing that sets our aspirations very early in life, like representation in children's books and on TV. Um, and so, yeah, I asked a bunch of writers and the 20 in the book are the 20 who said yes and came up with an idea and delivered a draft on time because we had, we had a, a ridiculous turnaround because we were going to try and release it in May instead of September so we could do something at Hay Festival. But then when we started going through the process, we realised that was probably a bit ridiculous. How long was each... Uh, what were you writing? What were you asking each writer to um, to give you, and, and what kind of time frame were you giving them? I said you've basically got. It was just before Christmas, I think. Like, I think they had till like the end of January to basically write three to five thousand words about uh, a story that they want to tell that links to the title of a good immigrant. It could be about race and immigration, or it could be about their family. It could be personal. It could be academic. It could be whatever they wanted it to be. But so yeah. Um, you know, and we lost writers along the way, um, you know, who either didn't have an idea that they were happy with or didn't, couldn't deliver a draft or who just ignored emails mm -hmm. um, or for contractual reasons uh, because of the play, the publication that they worked for couldn't write for anywhere else. And, and so, like, those 20 are in the book are the 20 who um, pitched, uh, said yes and pitched and delivered and edited and delivered and that's kind of it. The only person we, like Riz said yes very early on, mm. but, um, and I knew I wanted him in the book because like I'm good, really good friends with him and I know that he's got really interesting stories to tell, stories to tell and I know he can write. And he said yes very early on, but then 
he had a very short window of when he could write it because he was in Star Wars and that kind of had to, like reshoots on that had to take priority. And we ended up, leave, like he ended up delivering his essay very, very late because, you know, we we couldn't not have, have him in the book, but he was the only one we really waited for. Um, so yeah, there wasn't like this massive mathematic equation. It was, it all kind of came about sort of organically and messily and, you know, I, I asked way too many people then freaked out that they were all going to say yes. And then like some people dropped out, which made me go, oh, thank God. You know, and there are some people who either didn't reply or couldn't do it that I'm really gutted about. Like there's one writer in particular who um, just didn't reply to their email. Um, I, don't, I don't know why, but, you know. I don't, I don't doubt they're losing any sleep over not being in the book, but they're one of my favourite mm. um, like political writers around at the moment. I'm really gutted they're not in the book, but you know I don't think it makes the book any better or worse for not having them. So yeah, but it was a very interesting year. Obviously, you, you didn't know this when you um, commissioned uh, all these writers, but 2016 turned out to be the year of of, of Brexit. <laughs> and your book comes out and it had an incredible response. Can you talk a little bit about that response, the, the response it received and and how whether that surprised you or not? Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like the, the proofs for this book were going out just before the referendum. And so it was very quick. It was very near to journalists' hands when they were kind of looking for mm. some sort of explanation about marginalised communities of colour who kind of feel this anxiety about the way the country is going. Um, but as I said, like, we didn't mean it as a political manifesto. And what, what was strange about when the reviews came out, there were a couple of reviews that kind of tried to enforce on our book a narrative that just wasn't there where, through, from inception or a narrative that said, well, immigration is a very big topic, so why aren't they dealing with this and this and this and this? And it was like, well... Those aren't the stories that these person people wanted to tell, and and they're also like where pe- where people criticised us for not having any white immigrants in the book, and we were like, well, the book was very specifically a reaction against the lack of inclusion in publishing. Like you can't retroactively give it a narrative that wasn't there when we came up with it. And um, if you think that that's an important book to write, hey, I made this happen all by myself. You can do that too, my friend. Mm. Um, but the but the main but I mean, so those there were like those bits of negatives along the way where people were like, "Oh, you didn't represent this, or you didn't represent this." But overwhelmingly, like the response was amazing. Mm. I mean, that's definitely we, been my sense of it. You know, um, hearing about it just seems to have had the most incredible response. Did you sort of expect that? Obviously, you'd, you'd crowdfunded the project from the beginning, so you'd already had people really buying in, literally buying into the idea. Were there any surprises around um, the kind of people who were funding the project, or the, or the, or you know, the number of people who were interested right from the very beginning, as you say, before a single word had been written? Yeah, the the speed of it and the response to it was all a surprise. It was all amazing and very overwhelming. Like we were funded in seventy two hours. Mm. Um, I guess my big surprise when J.K. Rowling did tweet about it was I de- definitely found myself in her, in like. I was in a lot of people's mentions and a lot of people call her mummy, which I thought was strange. Um, but the, I think the big surprise was that people cared so much and I knew that people did, but like the response was amazing. And 
like almost unreplicatable. And I've done two crowdfunding campaigns since, and they haven't been. None of them have been as overwhelmingly brilliant as the Good Immigrant one was. And the thing, the thing that was really great about it was like because it happened so quickly, and all the writers were watching. Um, it really galvanised us as a community, and um, I think it kind of made us all feel something that this book was going to be something really, really special. We crowdfunded like quite a big total because um, I needed to pay the writers, but I paid them like a piddling amount of money because I just didn't think it would be the success it was, but it sold loads of, loads of, and I said like, if I make, if we make any money out of the sales of this, I'll obviously share it with you all. And then like it sold loads. And so like I get to now profit share all of the, like all of the royalties with them while it's still saying, selling. And that's that's really amazing. So we all kind of feel like it's our book rather than my book. Mm. And that's really, really important to me. And that is very nice to have that um, financial validation, I think, for um, a lot of writers who, you know, as you did, struggled to get um, a first publishing deal to then be able to richly reward them must be really satisfying. Yeah, definitely. And did that experience both of crowdfunding and the kind of positive um, publishing experience you had with Unbound, did that lead you to The Good Journal, which is your kind of new project? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the the thing that it made me realise was The Good Immigrant was just the start of something because, you know, there was so many writers who came forward and said, I want to write for this. And there were so many writers who said, do we have to only ever write about race and immigration and our struggle and tragedy and oppression? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And there were so many writers saying, like, when are you going to do, like, a sci-fi anthology? Or And I was like, yeah, you're right. And so I thought, why don't I do something that's a bit more like what Granter does, um, where we get to have so much more space for writers and we just get them to whatever they want. And we just pick what we think is the best work and put that in the magazine. And obviously that, you know... The publishing op- operates with a strange um, sort of reimagining of language. So when when publishing talks about we only publish the best books and we have to be really confident about bringing those books to market, I think a lot of writers take that very personally because they think that that is a, ju- a judgment about how good they are. Mm-hmm. But what what that editor or agent is implying but isn't clear is that what they're saying is, I don't like this because it is not to my personal tastes and um, therefore I can't I can't give it the love that it has like that that it requires to kind of get it to where it needs to be mm. and and that is totally fine I understand that and I've always really respected like one of the nicest rejections I ever had was someone saying I can get I get why this is funny and I get that this is funny but I really don't like comedic fiction so I'm not the best person for this. And I was like, okay, that's strange, but I get you. I respect, I respect you for saying that. Mm. And so the good, the good journal is us basically giving these writers space to do what they want. And we'll have different editors for each journal. So that isn't just my taste because I obviously have very specific tastes, but, and in, in a, in a weird way, I, I hope that we kind of give some agency back to what constitutes good in publishing and good be nuanced and not just you know, what like one homogenous gatekeeper opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it is exciting. So it'll come out four times and then we'll review whether we want to carry on doing it. Um, we've got some great writers um, 
lined up for it because we wanted to put new like established writers next to like either completely brand new writers or up and coming writers or like I basically said in the submissions like if you're brand new and no one's ever heard of you we want you if you've got a blog blog uh, we want you. If you've written for like a couple of online places, we want you. If you've had a short story published in an anthology, we want you. If you've had a novel out and it did okay, we still want you. If you won seven um, bookers, we still want you. All we care about is the writing and showing the wealth of diversity that is BAME writing in this country. Um, and you know, so and also like if you are known for other things but want really have a story that is burning a hole in your laptop that you need to get out there we also want you so like i'm hoping that we can find some completely unknown writers like we did with the good immigrant mm. um and also have you know people who are established for other things um write or th- write things or like people who've done lots of great online writing but haven't been published very often in books um so yeah i'm hoping it'll be a mixture so um, if any of our listeners are listening to that and wondering where they can go to find out more about it or how they can pitch, where should they go? Uh, to the goodjournal.co.uk forward slash submissions. And when will the first um, journal be out? Quite terrifyingly in April 2018, which is <laughs> not very long. The, the timescales are arbitrary and we set them ourselves so we can mm. hopefully we can potentially move them. But, you know, it's good. But that's the thing about doing a journal. It can be quite responsive and flexible in that way that books can't because books have to be slotted into schedules, whereas journals, they are inherently more flexible. But you've also had more um, exciting news yesterday. You were announced as one of the judges of the 2018 Rathbone Prize. So it seems like you're going to be juggling an awful lot over the next six months. Yeah, I quit my job recently. Oh, wow. That's yeah um i've basically quit my job for a year to basically do all these projects and then kind of review where i am at the end of the year um but yeah i'm judging the rathbones folio prize which is terrifying because it's a bloody prestigious prize and it's a prize i really love and um if i look back at the previous judging panels and winners i'm like fam i'm an imposter (laughs) all the best people feel like that i try my best you know what's I mean you've already got a lot on your plate but have you got um, and you've got a novel coming out in April are you writing anything else yourself at the moment or are you concentrating more on um, the good journal and uh, the novel you've got coming out in April um, so I'm, I've also got a YA out in June that I'm currently editing and it's quite a tough edit because I've it's my first YA I decided to make it a thriller, having never written thrillers before. I decided to set it in real time, and I decided to give it multiple narratives, and I decided to give it a single location. So it's really hard. And uh, so I'm I'm editing that. Uh, That'll come out in June. Um, And I probably won't do much writing in the first half of next year, but I know what my next novel is going to be, and I'm really excited about it. So um, it's good to have that kind of knowing that that is something I'm going to work on. And like, I've got the title for it, even though titles change, but I love the title. And um, yeah, it's like, I'm excited about it. I'm not too sure how you're going to answer this next question, but what would you advise young writers, particularly those who um, don't come from the mainstream and have a different story to tell 
how would you advise them to go about it apart from trying to get an agent um keep going we need you and don't let anyone ever question whether your story like whether there is a market for your story or not because they don't know that i think the best thing you can do is as well as the thing that you're working on try and write other things and build up a name for yourself like there's always like amazing spaces um like gal dem um that accepts submissions if you're if you're an excellent woman of color writer and um other spaces um as well and you know try and write some other stuff just to kind of build up your name if you can stand to be on twitter which is a dumpster fire then be on twitter but you don't have to be because at the end of the day all that matters is that book that you're writing get yourself into a writing group make sure someone who knows something about writing gives you feedback about it before you send it out to agents and when you send it out to an agent you've only got one shot with that agent um because agents inboxes are really really busy and so if they get to your your novel extract you have to make sure it's good enough for them to ask for the full manuscript and that when they get the full manuscript it is amazing and it's the best possible thing so like simple things like don't have a spelling mistake on the first page format it properly even though you love that particular font put it in Arial 12 point double space because um, agents read all their submissions on Kindles and Kindles do funny things to, to um, word files that are, that are a bit odd. Um, so just keep it conventional, like PDF it yourself if you have to, because it makes it easier for like, you then know what it's going to look like on an agent's Kindle. Um, make sure it's the right agent. Don't just send it to everyone. Don't just cut and paste your approach letter, tailor your approach letter. Um, find a personal connection with the agent. Maybe it's because they, they loved a book that you love that's on Twitter or they represent a, a writer that means something to you, but just make them at least feel that you've chosen them for a reason. Um, because a no is the easiest thing to get in the publishing industry when you're trying to get your work published. So you are, and you only need one yes, but when you get lots and lots of no's, you want, you want a really hard no, mm. uh, not an easy no. And there are lots of things you can do to make it an easy no, but the hard no, they might say something like, I really like this, but it kind of falls apart in the third act. Um, so it's not for me at this time because I'm really busy at which point you go, oh shit, I better look at the third act mm. or or whatever. So act you know? on the advice. Yeah. Well, I think all those tips were uh, incredibly useful and eminently practical. So I hope people will take advantage of them. And thank you so much for speaking to Always Take Notes and for giving up an hour of your time and for spending that hour staring at my husband's avatar because we couldn't do it on my Skype. <laughs> He's a handsome fella. You're, he looks very young in that picture. He he you know he looks about twelve. He, I, he is older. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Hello, it's us again with a update from our lives. Cassia, what about you? Well, obviously you just had Christmas um, and New Year. I was working over both, um, <laughs> but I did manage to take a little bit of time off, although I did have two interviews um, for the book that were scheduled bizarrely on Boxing Day. Um, but uh, yeah, apart from that, it was it was wonderful. How about you? 
Again, yeah, a work-dominated festive season. Um, I didn't have very much time off. It was so much fun. Yep. Uh, but I got a lot done and uh, looking forward to really getting into the final straights with the book. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> it's just been the same update for like the past three or four episodes. But at some stage, it'll be different, Kessia. Uh Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. You don't need to show the, the book to me for my own name. Anyway, okay, carry on. fair enough. Uh, our producers are <laughs> Olivia Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Uh, our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our social media is by Zara Hankier and graphic design by James Edgar. And we're on all manner of social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always and our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And as a special New Year present to us, do please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Um, thank you very much to everyone who's already done it. It is incredibly helpful. Thank you very much. Bye.